Hi, and welcome to episode number 25 of the Crypto Chick Podcast, your inside resource for the latest blockchain and crypto trends. I'm your host, the Crypto Chick, Rachel Wolfson. Today, I'm interviewing Alex Tapscott, a globally recognized writer, speaker, investor, and advisor. In this interview, Alex explains that the next trend in the blockchain space is DeFi, meaning decentralized finance, which is leading to a financial services revolution. Alex also talks about his book, Blockchain Revolution, which he wrote with his father, Don Tapscott. He also discusses his latest book, Financial Services Revolution. Let's get right to my interview with Alex. Enjoy. Okay, great. So today I'm here with Alex Tapscott. Alex, thank you so much for joining the show. Thanks for having me. First off, I think it's important for our listeners to know a little bit about your background and how you got involved in the blockchain and cryptocurrency space. Sure. So I first learned about Bitcoin back in 2013. So I wasn't one of the original uh, people to get involved in the space, but I was earlier than I think a lot of others. And I actually learned about it in in an unusual way. So at the time, I was working in investment banking in Toronto and New York City. We actually had a company that, that came through who was a payment processor. He was looking to uh, enable people to move fiat uh, onto cryptocurrency exchanges. And they explained a little bit about the size of the market and, and the business opportunity. And I realized that I didn't know anything about this thing. Um, and if I was going to be knowledgeable about uh, them and give them good advice, then I needed to look into it. So um, I started to investigate Bitcoin. And the more I learned about it, the more convinced I became that this was a really important innovation and that uh, perhaps even more important is that the underlying technology could be used to transform a lot of different things. And since I was working in financial services at the time, I was thinking a lot about the assets that I dealt with on a daily basis. So things like um, equities, uh, bonds, um, options, and the like, and uh, looking at how they were moved and stored and traded and seeing myself as an intermediary in the mix of all of this business and realizing that the technology could hold the potential to hugely disrupt that, including potentially disintermediating a lot of traditional banks and financial middlemen from the movement and, and storage of, of assets. So that's how I got kind of started looking into it. Um, and then a very lucky and fortunate thing happened, which is that I was on a ski trip with my dad, Don Tapscott, who's written 16 books about the impact of technology on business. And we started to talk a little bit about Bitcoin. And he, at the time, was running a big research project at the University of Toronto and asked me to basically write a report for him. So I was still working full time. But uh, I had a little bit more time on my hands. I just completed this thing called the CFA designation, which your listeners probably don't know about. But it's a fairly demanding thing. And I just kind of got through it all. So I actually had some spare time and uh, decided to dedicate myself to writing this report. And that eventually led to other work that we did together, which eventually led to the book. So his agent came to him and said, you know, this is uh, an interesting topic. People are very curious about it. There isn't really a book out there that is um, accessible to the average person. Would you be interested in writing a book? And Oh, by the way, we think the fact that you're doing this with Alex is actually a huge positive. Um, so my dad kind of came, came to me with an offer I couldn't refuse, which is how would you like to quit your job and write a book about this thing that he knew I was really passionate about? And so I said, yes. So in 2015, I quit my job to write a book, having never written a book before um, and with no real idea of what was going to happen next. But um, I was convinced that we were at the beginning of, of an important stage in human history, not to sound too grandiose, but I was very uh, bullish on this. And I knew no matter what, that 
um, it would lead to some interesting opportunities. So the book came out in 2016, a year later, uh, right around the time that people you know, outside of the tech world were starting to pay attention to this. A lot of bankers, a lot of people in uh, different kinds of industries, even governments. And as a result, the book did really well. It uh, has been translated into 19 languages, I believe, and uh, has sold over half a million copies and has allowed me to um, use this as a platform to do lots of things that I'm really passionate about, uh, including um, launching the Blockchain Research Institute, which uh, I'd be pleased to talk about, but I'll, I'll stop there for, for now. Yeah, definitely. Well, first of all, that's a really interesting story. And I like the fact that you came from a traditional financial background and then you got into blockchain and you got into blockchain. I mean, from my perspective, still very early on. And I'm reading your book right now, Blockchain Revolution. And what I'm really so impressed by in the book is that, so I started getting into the enterprise blockchain technology side of things, I guess it was last year, 2018, the end of 2018. And what I'm so impressed about is that your book came out in 2015, and this is all about enterprise blockchain. So somehow you and your dad Don knew that this was like already happening before everybody else seemed to know that this was already happening. So how how did you guys actually determine that? And what is the Blockchain Research Institute also? Because I think that played an important role in all of this. Yeah, well, we didn't have a crystal ball, but um, what we did have was you know a lot of uh, of research under our belts, even when we were just going through the book. So we interviewed, I think, over 115 people. Um, in the industry. And this was during a time when people uh, in this business were just grateful for the opportunity to talk about what they were doing. Um, a lot of, you know, big names today were just, you know, early stage entrepreneurs at the time. And uh, what we determined throughout all of that research was that this was uh, nothing short of the second era of the internet. You know, for uh, 30 years, we had the internet of information. Um, it was a publishing medium that allowed you to uh, share images and videos and to access information online. But it wasn't actually designed for assets. And that's because when you move something on the internet, if you share a photograph or if you posted something on a website or if you send an email or whatever, um, you're not sending an original unique thing. You're sending a copy and you're retaining the original. So that works fine for things like you know Instagram photos, uh, but it doesn't work well when you're talking about assets, uh, things that require scarcity that need to exist only in one place at one time. Right. So it's really problematic if you know, I owe you 20 bucks. And when I send it to you, you're not sure if I still have a copy of it and I can't send the same copy to someone else. So blockchain to us solved this uh, problem. And, you know, we, we weren't the first to identify it. Obviously, the double spend problem was in Satoshi's white paper. Uh, but, you know, what we decided to, to think about, how we decided to think about this was basically as the first digital medium for value, in the same way that the internet was the first digital medium for information. And uh, we just said to ourselves, well, listen, like if this, can work well for Bitcoin, and we know it can. Um, and then Ethereum also launched, and there were some others as well in the mix at the time. Could it work for other kinds of assets? Could this be used to you know, change how we move and store financial assets like stocks and bonds? Could it be used as a way to uh, trace assets in value chains or supply chains? Um, you know, Could it be used to uh, create a marketplace for other kinds of assets like electricity? Um, you know, the Internet of Things, you've got all these connected devices, uh, they need to communicate to each other, not just information, but also value. Uh, you know, if you've got uh, a house that's got a battery that's drawing electricity from your neighbor's solar panel, that transaction is something that needs to happen peer to peer. So um, we, we kind of let our imaginations fly a little bit. 
in doing the research realized that we weren't nuts, that there were actually lots of people working on lots of really interesting projects like this. And, uh, you know, it was early stage and frankly still is today. Uh, but the, the contours of where this was going were becoming quite clear and the direction uh, to us uh, seemed unstoppable. So, yeah, you know, better lucky than smart, they say, I guess. Right. And then what role did the Blockchain Research Institute play in all this? And also, can you tell us what the Blockchain Research Institute is? The book came out in May of 2016. Hard to believe, but that was over three years ago. And um, throughout 2016, uh, we were you know, doing a lot of travel, talking, promoting the book, meeting with business leaders um, who were very curious about this technology. And we heard the same thing over and over again from people in, in enterprise, which was that they were convinced or at least getting close to being convinced that this technology was going to have a big impact uh, on their business. But they weren't sure how and they didn't know where to go to look for resources uh, or expertise on how to actually achieve any real change beyond just, you know, launching a pilot or a proof of concept or something, or joining a consortium, which is what a lot of uh, companies were doing at the time. And so we we saw identified, I guess, in the market, this, uh, this very urgent, uh, you know, need and uh, decided that we were in a good, good position to, to help fill it. So the Blockchain Research Institute launched in the first quarter of 2017. And today is the largest independent blockchain think tank in the world that's focused on uh, use cases, opportunities and challenges in enterprise and in government. So our membership is consists of, of mostly large corporations and, and governments. So there are financial services firms, uh, companies like CIBC and NASDAQ and Manulife and others, but we also have uh, large internationals like Coca-Cola, uh, Pepsi, Exxon, Delta Airlines, uh, uh, Microsoft, IBM, and others. I think there are around 100 uh, members in total. And it's a global distribution and it's across industries. And we um, have a syndicated model where the individual members fund the research. We have a team of 50 researchers spread around the world that are doing projects that are both industry vertical focused. So, for example, how does blockchain impact the world of clearing and settling securities trades uh, to projects that are focused on horizontal change? And by that, I mean, how is this going to change business processes? What does this mean for the role of the chief financial officer? What does this mean for the chief operating officer? How will it change supply chains? Uh, what does this mean for the role of HR when, you know, potentially there are digital identity systems that are verified on the blockchain and are private to individuals that HR people would need to access in order to hire the right person? So uh, we've looked at it in these different kinds of ways and uh, produced to date, I think, around 80 different projects. Uh, that are, at least for the first period, exclusive to our members. Now, we've used that platform as a, um, a jumping-off point to do some other really interesting things. So, for example, in April of this year, we hosted our first-ever uh, Blockchain Revolution Global event, which is uh, an international conference that draws people from all around the world. We had 1,100 attendees last year and over 150 speakers. And uh, this is very much focused on enterprise change. So. We had uh, Bridget Van Carlgen, who runs the um, IBM practice at IBM and is in charge for about half the revenue. We had the finance minister for the province of Ontario. Uh, we had regulators from the Ontario Securities Exchange, uh, Commission excuse me, and others, and uh, other business leaders from many different uh, walks of life, including in the crypto space, like Leanne Kemp from Everledger, Bill Barhide from Abra, and others. 
And um, it was an incredible event. Um, and uh, we're hosting our next one next year. So that's one example of something we did. We also have an online um, education platform. It's called, uh, sorry, it's a partnership with INSEAD, the business school, and it's on the Coursera platform. And it's uh, Coursera's number one a non-technical blockchain course. It's in the top 5%, I think, of all their courses. And it's available for all to see. So it's sort of like a tiered strategy. Our goal is to educate and advocate and to inform people, not just about the opportunities, but the real challenges and limitations and how they should prepare for uh, this future and how they should use this technology. Um, you know, at the very high end, we have these bespoke relationships with our corporate members. We do lots of work for them. But anybody can access the course and anyone can see uh, our videos or attend our events if they wish. Yeah, wow. That sounds amazing. And it definitely sounds like a really great event, especially those interested in the enterprise space. In terms of trends that you're seeing now, because it seems like you, you know, with the Blockchain Research Institute, that you're pretty up to date on what we're seeing in the enterprise space. I think that supply chain management is one of the best use cases for enterprise blockchain. What are your thoughts on that? And are there other use cases that you see developing or emerging that might even be better than supply chain management? Yeah, so you're absolutely right. Um, the, the two big trends are that um, what we're seeing is the other aspects of our you know, modern world are starting to get interested in this. So that, what I mean by that is, you know, Bitcoin and, and, and other early cryptocurrencies emerged from civil society. They were grassroots um, you know, organizations or grassroots projects that happened in the open source community and scaled on their own. But because of their success, um, we're starting to see two other big stakeholder groups really pay attention to this. One is governments, obviously. And that takes two different forms. One is that they're very increasing, increasingly interested in scrutinizing, regulating, and, and governing these, these assets. But the other aspect is that they're looking to be a model user of the technology and they're very interested in the potential for this technology um, as it pertains to their own currencies. And then you've got the enterprise world. And with the enterprise world, you know, I think there's been a lot of experimentation and trial and error around blockchain. And I think it's clear at this point that there are a few uh, type use cases and industries where this is going to have a, a really big impact. Um, I would say that supply chains are one of them. In fact, at our, at our last event in April, we had um, the CIO of FedEx, as well as um, senior executives from UBS and DHL on stage doing a panel session where they were talking about a project that they were launching together or collaborating on that was going to be a common set of technology standards for the supply chain industry. So why is supply chain interesting? Well, the way it works today is that you've got these different siloed systems that are able to track an asset only at whatever point it is in real time, or sorry, at, at a certain moment, right? So within the supply chain for, you know, a device like a telephone, there could be, uh, you know, rare earth metal or a widget that is either mined or made somewhere in the world, and it has to travel through multiple different parties, go through different customs unions, uh, travel through different uh, countries until eventually it reaches its end point at the retailer or in the finished product. And what blockchain enables is for every one of the diff those different stakeholders in the supply chain to be able to trace on this distributed ledger, which everyone can access, but no single entity can edit, so they can all trust that it's true, uh, to be able to see where that asset is, to ensure it's the asset that they thought it was, to ensure that all duties and levies have been paid, to ensure that it's not counterfeit. And so right now, um, according to Deloitte, 
there's upwards of $500 billion a year of supply chain fraud. Now, you can't eliminate it all, but if you can, at the margin, make the system you know, 10% more efficient, you're saving $50 billion. So to me, that is a fascinating example. And, you know, I think a lot of people think of companies in the logistics and, and transportation space as not being particularly tech savvy, but that's not necessarily true. You know, FedEx was created by um, Fred Smith, you know, as a project out of his uh, MBA class, has been a pioneer in all sorts of different technology systems. And he uh, is a big believer in this stuff. So I do see that as an area of growth. I actually think the biggest um, area of growth, though, is in the financial services industry. And um, we're seeing that play out in a couple of different ways. So, you know, if your listeners are familiar with the, the space, they would be, they would know this term DeFi, decentralized finance. You know, the idea that you can uh, replicate aspects of the industry. So moving value, payments, storing value, savings, um, lending value, credit, you know, et cetera, um, in a way that involves no intermediaries and is basically trustless. Now, I think that there are, I think there are examples of that working in practice, Bitcoin being the biggest example of that. You can move value peer to peer without an intermediary and, you know, quantity small and large and do so relatively easily. I and mean, that's a fascinating use case. But I think that for a lot of uh, uses in financial services, we're not going to have a totally decentralized system. I think we're probably going to have more of a hybrid where you've got aspects of the way the industry works today combined with elements of this technology in, in a term that I call open finance. So open finance is, um, individuals, institutions, enterprises um, interacting with each other using blockchain as an operating system and, and uh, using digital assets as a medium of exchange, right? So that can be currencies, but it can also be stocks and bonds, for example. You know, I used to work in the securities business, as I mentioned earlier, and I can tell you that the way in which transactions are cleared and settled, even today, isn't actually that much different than it was in the past. Uh, you know, in the 1980s, for example, if you wanted to buy or sell a security, um, you would have to call a broker and then that transaction would clear and then settle in seven days and it would cost you a few cents. Today, you can do the transaction online, obviously, through your, through your brokerage account uh, or through Robinhood or something like that. But when it comes to actually settling the transaction, it still takes a couple of days and still involves almost all of those same intermediaries. And it may not cost you seven cents, it costs less, but it's still, and I mean seven cents a share, but it still costs something. Um, and so what's fascinating is that all of the things that make Bitcoin work, the ability to you know move value peer-to-peer, for settlement and to be final and irreversible, that can easily be applied to other kinds of assets. And there's no reason why you wouldn't want to do that in financial services. Why take three days to complete a transaction when you can do it in three seconds or even three minutes? Uh, it's much easier, it's much faster, and it's much more efficient. And when you have a system that's easier, faster, and more efficient, it lowers the barriers for others to participate, increases inclusion, increases choice, and reduces cost. And those are all things that will make the economy function better. So um, I do think, like to your point, supply chain is definitely very interesting. Uh, but I do think financial services is the area where the rubber is really hitting the road. Um, you know, we haven't had a big innovation to finance since the ATM. And now we've got this new operating system for the industry and it's pretty uh, powerful. Right. Well, that's really interesting. And I'm assuming that's why you have this new book out, which is, well, I don't know if it's out yet. I guess right now it might be pre-order, but it's the Financial Services Revolution book. And uh, yeah, just talk a little bit about that and and when it will be out, actually, because I think it is just pre-order now. 
Uh, right now, it is pre-order. Um, it's available on Amazon um, to buy. It will be shipping, I think, uh, January 20th or, okay. or 22nd um, in, in the United States and Canada. We also have a, a Portuguese uh, um, translation that is underway as well as uh, some interested in translating in Chinese and Spanish as well. So that's not uh, surprising. We've often found that there's been interest uh, globally. But uh, the book is... It's a unique kind of project, and it's one that I'm really proud of, and, and um, you know, we put a lot of work into it. Um, the book is a compilation of the best research that the BRI, the Blockchain Research Institute, has done in financial services. Um, we have uh, projects in the book by Michael Casey, who wrote The Age of Cryptocurrency and is currently the chief content officer of uh, Coindesk. Uh, we have uh, reports from Primavera to Filippi and Fenny Wang. So Primavera uh, and Fenny started Koala, which is the uh, largest legal advocacy group in the blockchain world. And Primavera is uh, an entrepreneur and a professor and a scholar and all sorts of other things in her own way. And we have a n- number of other high-profile people as well. Um, I also wrote the preface to the book. Um, it's sort of a major first chapter that introduces many of the concepts as well as new ones. And uh, what we did is we edited it all down so that it reads and flows like a book. It's very readable, very approachable, diverse, lots of interesting content. Um, for anybody who has an interest in, in understanding where the world is going, and uh, you don't have to be in financial services uh, because, frankly, you know what the future of money and markets affects us all, uh, you should definitely check it out. Um, it's, a, it's a great book, and it's available um, now for the first time ever to the public. Yeah. And what I really like about Blockchain Revolution, because that's what I'm reading now, and then when I'm done with that book, I'll actually go on to read your next book, is that it's just very easy to understand. Like you said, you know, the Financial Services Revolution book is kind of for everyone. And I also think that's the same with Blockchain Revolution. Like people who don't know much about the space but want to learn more about it, these books are really easy to follow, like very simplistically written in a way where people can actually understand what blockchain is, how businesses are using it. So I'm really excited for the next book because I actually don't know so much about that, um, that world that's now emerging. So, and you seem to be kind of like this, uh, you could predict the future of the blockchain space. So I'm excited to read that one. (laughs) Well, (laughs) you know, um, there's an old quote, uh, uh, an old quote about predictions, which I won't say because it's sort of dirty. But um, what I what I will say is this, which is that you know I, I don't really think the future is something to be predicted. Uh, I think it's something to be achieved, and that's why we do the work that we do with the BRI, and that's why you know I've I've done a lot of other stuff in this space, investing, advising companies, um, because you know this stuff doesn't happen without people putting in the effort and doing the work. And you know I'd like to think in that small way. Uh, we're helping contribute to the things that I guess we predicted uh, in the books that we've written. Right. Cool. Well, this has been great, Alex. Before we actually end um, the interview, do you have any additional thoughts that you want to share? Any maybe predictions you want to make about the price of Bitcoin? I don't know, like those questions or or any other thoughts? <laughs> well, I won't make any price uh, predictions, but I will talk about one prediction we'd actually make in uh, towards the end of my uh, introductory chapter of this book, which is we imagine what the world would look like in 2030. So 10 years, you know, we're entering a new decade. And uh, I think it's tough to do annual predictions. Uh, but I think when you're looking at 10 years, you can sort of see the direction of things. And basically, I think we're moving into a world where you're going to 
see uh, a lot of big changes to how we think about money and assets. So for about 75 years, the U.S. dollar has been the global reserve currency, and I think that's starting to change. Uh, the U.S. is a much smaller part of the global economy. Um, a lot less trade happens with the United States as a counterparty. And you're seeing emerging powers in China and elsewhere uh, starting to rock the boat. So what I will, uh, what I do believe will happen is that um, probably starting with China, major global economies are going to create digital currency versions of their own currencies. Um, and they're not necessarily going to be like Bitcoin. In fact, in China's case, they may be quite the opposite. Instead of being an instrument for economic freedom and autonomy, they could be instruments for control and power. Uh, but they will uh, launch and they will be used as a way to, uh, in China's case, you know, keep an eye on citizens and extend their influence globally. So I think the U.S. will have to follow suit. And I think eventually we're going to end up in a world where we have a few very large global cryptocurrencies that are controlled by governments. Um, beyond that, I think we're also going to see more and more private companies creating currencies or payment systems that employ this technology. So Libra, with Facebook um, pioneered in its consortium, is a really good example of that. You know, Libra might not succeed, but it'll be the first man through the wall. And, uh, you know, he always ends up bloody and opens a hole and others will go through it. Um, I think it's sort of an unstoppable force at this point. And uh, you'll see others like Amazon and Alibaba, Tencent, you know, looking to do likewise. And then the third thing is, you know, you're with these two sort of uh, emergent stakeholders, government and uh, private sector, creating, you know, more and more powerful ways in which the, they can take and keep an eye on your money. Uh, that's going to make Bitcoin much more popular. Um, you know, I think we're at this tipping point where people realize that privacy is uh, a right, that it has been undermined, and that they're looking to take more control back uh, of their of their online selves, and that includes how they, you know, transact. And so I do think that Bitcoin will be the third pillar, the third uh, leg of this stool that will support what the economy looks like in 2030. So uh, that that's not a, a, a wish list by any means. I'm not saying that's a desired outcome, but I'm saying that that's where we're going. Um, so that's going to have an impact on everybody, um, everywhere, no matter where you are. And uh, that's why no matter, you know, if you're in this space or not, you need to pay attention to what's going on. In the same way that you should have paid attention to what was happening with the internet in the late um, 1990s, because, you know, the dot-com boom came and went, but the impact um, was lasting and pervasive and is only getting stronger. So uh, buckle up, as I say. Right. Yeah. Well, those are definitely words of wisdom. And I'm excited. I'm excited to see where this space goes, because I've been I've been writing about the space since 2017 and there's always, it's just such an exciting space to be in, like out of all the technology that I've ever covered in my life, like blockchain is just so interesting and it's, um, it's exciting. So it's really great to hear someone like you say all these things. Um, Alex, if our listeners want to get in touch with you, are you active on social media? And if so, what is your Twitter handle, Instagram, all of that? <laughs> yeah, I'm active on both on uh, Twitter at, at Alex Tapscott. A-L-E-X-T-A-P-S-C-O-T-T, -T, all one word, obviously. Um, and um, yeah, you can check me out on, on LinkedIn and uh, on Instagram as well. Um, my Instagram handle is al.tapscott. A-L.tapscott, I guess Alex was thinking. So there you go. Great. Thank you so much, Alex. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much for joining us today. You can find further information in the show notes to learn more about Alex and what he is currently working on. 
And if you enjoyed listening to this episode of the Crypto Chick Podcast, please be sure to subscribe to the show. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Also, if you have time, please leave me a review. I enjoy hearing your feedback. You can reach out to me on Twitter at RachelWolf00, on LinkedIn, or on Instagram at Blockchain and Bikinis. Thanks so much for listening. See you all next time.